We are moving through the book of Acts, one chapter at a time, whether that chapter covers one pericope or three or four, we're kind of looking at a larger narrative, and this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6, and let me just say this, I'm happy it's only 15 verses. I don't know if it was the luck of the draw or what it was with Pastor Alex and I, I'm, I'm thankful that he's had those like real, real large ones to have to deal with. I, I, work, I work best in tight quarters. So this always adds a little bit of a dilemma. But there are 15 verses here in Acts chapter 6 and we will continue to pick up the study here by first of all reading this. Scripture says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the Word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat 
in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Would you bow your heads with me, church, as we open the message in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we give you that. The discussion that takes place transfers, of course, over into this trial that Stephen undergoes. Now, as in understanding the covenants, here's one thing that we want to note as we begin to dive into this text, that, that Christ, the church, are the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. Particularly, and you'll see this next week, under the promise that God makes to Abraham, you'll recall in Genesis chapter 12, God promises that through his lineage, the seed will come to Christ. Through his seed, he'll make of him a great nation, the nation of Israel, and that he will give them a land. That's the, that's the near promise and, of course, fulfillment that took place. But there was a greater fulfillment because we know Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of all the covenants. And the Apostle Paul will tell us in the book of Galatians chapter 3, that of all of the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of the Christ was Jesus of Nazareth. And so, to a greater degree, this seed is fulfilled in Jesus, and that seed, we see the apostle use this in Romans, that we are connected to Abraham by faith, which is the church, you recall again in, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, Yahweh tells Abraham, in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed, the church, as it meets this morning across the globe, and that that land is ultimately fulfilled in that God creates a new heaven and a new earth that is untainted by sin. So there's a sense in any prophecy where you have a near context fulfillment, and of course then one that's a later fulfillment, and of course that fulfillment is Jesus, it is the church, and it is one day when Jesus returns, he will make a new heaven and a new earth. So for us, even uh, the Abrahamic promise or covenant is still ongoing. As we begin to turn our attention, we, of course, have, have seen that Jesus has ascended. He's given him a mission. He's repeated that mission as to how they'll be empowered from Matthew chapter 28. And he has gone 10 days later. The Spirit comes. Um, we've, we've moved through a problem uh, that took place when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. God kills them, which immediately tells us that the church is is holy to God, and it's to be taken and viewed very seriously. And now, of course, we find ourselves um, with a problem, a problem that the, that the church at Jerusalem had. And here's the problem as it unfolds in verse 1. The Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jewish women who were widows. But to the native Jewish people who would speak uh, only Hebrew or Aramaic, these Hellenists had, had popped up and said, hey, listen, we're, we're getting neglected in the food, in the daily distribution. 
and, and we need help. And it would be easier to view those people who were Hellenists to be outsiders. Of course, we know that the church is called to be unified in Christ. In the church, in Christ, there is no ethnicity. There is no economical standard. There's people of all color. There's people who have walked in from, from poor to rich together. There is no difference in the sense of gender, male or female. There's no sense of difference in those who have an educational background. The church are all common in Christ because Christ himself is the commonplace to which we enter into the body of Jesus. Now, this obviously makes sense to us, and yet the church in every culture and in every generation has suffered to some degree or another with various forms of this thing, uh, of the church being unified. Perhaps it was that these Hebrews didn't see them as pure as they were. And they viewed them as outsiders, which clearly they did. And that was a part of the difficulty and the strife that you see early on in the church between Jews and Greeks. It'd be easy for us to kind of set back and say that prejudice in whatever fashion or forms of neglect or segregation of groups in church don't affect us. But if we were to be honest, that would be a lie. Prejudice and these types of things affect all of us. And here's why it does, because we're fallen. So we come to any text in the Bible or, or any outward living of our own Christianity and, and we kind of struggle. Perhaps you may be one who struggles because we have an Arabic church within our own church that's meeting right now. We get groups that are pitted against one another and it's, and it's easy for us to become divided. And of course, we know that would just be the tool that Satan uses. So first of all, I want to say this. I think it's important that we try to identify before God where do I have these holes in my heart that create this prejudice towards any group of people because all people are created in the image of God. Thus, all people have value. And what's crazy when you honestly are, are dumbing this down is that people get fragmented over color pigmentation that makes up about a sixteenth of an inch of your skin. But, but we do. And it happens. And every church is on trial in one sense where, where Satan himself is trying to berate this group of people so that they would not be able to accomplish their mission. And their mission that Jesus said we would be identified to the church is that all men would know that you have, that you are my disciple, that you have love for one another. So our unity in Christ 
should always cross ethnicity, economic background, gender, God-given, of course, male or female, or educational. The church struggled with this. The largest dissertation on the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there was classification between the poor and the rich. So the very first thing we should do is to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with God and, and ask of God, where do I have a hole in my heart? So, so from this, this problem that incurs, they, they have a, a meeting in the leadership of the apostles as they meet together and, and they, they see the essential nature of what they're called to do by God is to preach and to teach the word of God and to prayer, but we need help. Because this problem is sincere. And the facts are the Hellenist, Greek-speaking Jewish people are being, the widows are being neglected. They need to be, make sure that they're taken care of. And here are some of the things that unfold in the seven men. They are to be of a good reputation. They are to be full of faith, filled by the Spirit, and have wisdom. Okay, so now we're not going to break down all of that, but, you know, this makes sense to us. We look at the qualifications and the criteria to be um, uh, an elder or a pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3, along with those who become deacons because it becomes a legitimate office in the New Testament church. If you look at the, the book of Philippi, Paul opens the letter to the elders and the deacons, plural. Okay, as a result of this, these people, or these men in this case, are to have a good reputation. And a good reputation, we know from the other criteria, certainly starts within the church, but it does also carry the idea that they hold a good reputation of those outside the church, meaning those who are without Christ. They are to be full of faith as those who are trusting in Jesus and they are living out their faith. To be filled by the Spirit simply means they are, they are controlled by the Spirit. They're not perfect men, but they are led and controlled by the Holy Spirit into the service that they provide and the way they live their lives. And, and then thirdly, they're to have wisdom, which is uh, simply uh, the practical aspects of Christianity are skillfully lived out in their lives. So they appoint seven guys, right? And of course, from the task, we know that this problem that incurs is, is dealt with and, of course, these Hellenist uh, widowed women receive food. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is obviously a common passage that churches or Protestant churches have always used on the office um, of deacon. But I want to set this back just a step. Um, we had a great class today on service in, in Pastor Brett's class. Great discussion a lot of people were included in it, uh, in, in giving, you know, the discussion on it. It was a wonderful time. For those of you that uh, are of interest, male or female, 
that would like to become a deacon. Um, our deacon, Kevin Osborne, is going to be teaching this in the next session. So if you, f uh, uh, of teaching for like 13 weeks, I think we start the first week of December or, or whenever that is. I can mess that up. I have that right. Okay. And that'll be a great class. We're going to have other classes along with that. But I want to step back from it. This is an official office, though we believe that the office of deacon is official. And that is to look at the concept of helps. The church gives help. That's the first point. The gospel believed in Christians, we have a desire as a Christian to want to help. I don't care what it is. And that desire is a God-driven compulsion that is placed there by the Holy Spirit so that when you find yourselves in circumstances, Christ is at work in you and you want to help. You want to help because you're a Christian. You want to help because Christ is motivating you within to want to contribute. And this can go to small tasks. Or, or, or tasks that are, that are very large. And we won't turn there, but just this, this idea of giving help, let me give you a couple of things. Helps is mentioned as a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. Okay, so now follow this. Every Christian is called to help. Every one of us. But there are those that that God by the Spirit gives a greater unction to want to help. They are drawn and they are spiritually motivated to live out a service. And that service, uh, the Apostle Paul calls, it's the gift of helps. And it's not complicated. You just see a situation or a circumstance and what you want to do, you want to you want to help, and you want to help because Christ in you is motivating you to want to help. It's the gift of helps. It's general to all, but it certainly becomes more of a greater compulsion to those who want to become a deacon. They begin to see needs. I say that because, again, I just want to look at the concept of just being, just to want to help. Because wanting to help is woven in to the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Helps mean I want to give care to a circumstance. Those circumstances can seem minuscule. Those circumstances can be large. Now, let me just brag on all you guys for just a minute. Christ Community Church, this room is filled with a bunch of helpers. When these men in a week-to-week -week way tell you they love you as I love you, it certainly is true because you're Christian Man, it becomes infinitely even more true when you become a pastor.
And I would love at this point to just stop and begin to note specific things that so many of you have done, every one of you, to become a help to Christ Community Church and the impact that you are making on people's lives and the cause of Christ in this place. We have a baby that needs a little help, and there goes some help. I think of the elderly that's in this room. When we embarked upon close to 30 years ago to go to a temporary facility in an, from an established building, a temporary facility that we stayed in for a year and a half while this was, place was being built. And while it was being built, we hadn't even got authority yet from the city to build here. Man, those were some days. It was like, uh-oh. I'll never forget being in that room in, in, at the city of Sterling Heights when they were voting to whether we would... Uh, be allowed to build here. Folks, we had about a million dollars in the process already. And those nine board members, through a three-hour meeting, the initial vote was eight said no, one said yes. And God and his providential care to us moved back through that room as there was 50 church members that went. And it came to a unanimous vote. We'll let them build. And many of you, some of you anyway, you older people were there. You were there at that meeting. But beyond that, you have gone through two building processes and two fundraising campaigns where people contributed out of their retirement means above even their regular offering. Man, you younger people should love these older people because God used them and this is why we're here. They were faithful. And theirs were some trying days in there. A lot of trying days. A lot of difficult days. Yet, people were moved. They were moved in their inner man. Something that resonated deep within their own soul. And they simply said, I want to help. And you know what they did? They gave. They gave financially. That's a part of helps. And then they begin to do a number of other things. And voila, we're here. And there are other ways that the elderly have come into play. Because, again, for time's sake, you know, you can't go to all. But I really would like to. The most beautiful people in this room in my life come from this room. These are people who have sacrificed everything about their lives and dummied down, looking at this at its smallest common denominator, God moved in their hearts to want to help. Now, as time goes on, I've been here three decades, you begin to see people who were in their youth stage grow up and they get married. The word young has, that, that, the, the group of the young has, has, has kind of changed for me, you know. I like to tell my boys I'm in my 60s, but I'm still crispy. I'm, I'm young. But the truth is I'm not young. 
And my body reminds me of that every day. And so many young people have stood up now. And I can remember being in so many various meetings through the earth. And you begin to think, you know, about the church and begin to think, well, how are we going to get help this way? How are we going to get this help this way? Man, there's never no need to panic. And I believe that God supplies for all of his true churches. When the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, the text of the words of God become to life in God's people. And guess what they want to do? They want to help. So let me encourage you to act on that. Some of those things, in simplistically, um, they happen organically. They go unseen. And some of those tasks go to full things specifically. You have to get together because the task is more monumental. It's greater. It's necessary. But at the very heart, both the elderly and the young in our church. They want to help. I quickly scold any old guy in my life that's reap, or ripping at, uh, what are they, Gen X, Gen Z, whatever. You know, are you, our young people are some of those hardest working. I mean, we, we have tasks that we give various men and women in our church that are young. And to my knowledge, we have yet to have one say no. Why? Because they are motivated by Christ to work and to help. And it's a beautiful thing. Now where does this come from? Because, dear friends, Jesus is the true deacon. Jesus, within the throne room of heaven when the eternal plan of redemption was unfolding and, 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 and the father said I'm going to send the son Jesus immediately said father I'll go I'll take on a human body I'll, I'll dwell with those the, those contradiction of sinners against my holiness I will live for them I will die for them I will help the helpless Jesus is the true deacon. Jesus is the true servant. And that centers on Jesus wanted to give help to we who are helpless. So through his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, Jesus came. And he came out of love and care for his father and love and care for you. Well, here's the result of this. Verse 7. i got to move along. Since the word of God then, as this help comes, continued to increase, I don't want you to miss this, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. So God keeps adding these people, right, in copious amounts, and, and then it says that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As God is multiplying his church, as he is greatly lavishing his grace in saving upon people, he saves here, the Bible says, some priests, which again, back to those concentric circles, is going on in Jerusalem, right? We've seen this before. They're meeting on Solomon's porch, and they're preaching. And in Solomon's porch, which is just on the exterior of the temple, they would have this disputing and reasoning that would go on, no doubt that's where Stephen was at at this time, and from that, 
God saved a great deal of priests. They begin to hear the knowledge of the gospel. They, of course, knew the Old Testament. They knew the covenants. God awakened their hearts and minds to say, Wow, this Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. He suffered and he died and he rose from the dead. They knew those things to be true in a sense. And then they trusted in Christ by faith to save them. Listen to me. And instantaneously... God gave maturity to the church because they had a group of men who understood the law, who understood the nature of Christ-centered preaching that they would learn of the apostles who were for the most part unlearned men and they enriched the lives of God's people through their preaching and teaching. And so the church was strengthened and the church, the joy of the church was multiplied. Because what makes us more joy-filled than Christ-centered preaching? You know, it's not good when a church is immature. When a church is immature, an innumerable amount of false doctrines can come into play. Satan can attempt to make divisiveness out of those who do not understand the Word of God. So, if you've been saved for six months, by the way, we're baptizing and receiving members next week. What a joy it's been to hear personally, their testimonies and of coming to Christ. Some, some younger people, younger adults, but I mean, God keeps saving. We keep rejoicing. We want to hear every testimony. <laughs> if you have yet to get baptized and you need to be baptized, you have professed Christ, man, come to us. We'll dunk you. <laughs> the priests were added to the church because our God is gracious to supply. He gives the church instant maturity. Secondly, as we transition to what becomes really the beginning of the trial of Stephen, we'll want to look at this. The gospel believed brings conflict. The gospel believed brings conflict. Look at the ministry of Stephen, verse 8. And Stephen was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's full of grace. People who are full of grace, right? They want to speak the words of grace. They want to, they want to infect other people's lives. Last week I told you the picture of grace so our our English mind can, can kind of understand this. It is, it is those who are superior heaping upon those who are inferior when those who are inferior can add nothing to those who are superior. Man, is that not God. I can offer God nothing impressively, yet He heaps his grace into my life. 
And he multiplies that with joy. Because our God is full of grace. As an expression of that, Stephen, who now becomes this deacon, he's full of grace. And he's preaching Christ. And I want you to see this in verse 13 and 14. Though he is indicted, I do believe this was the core of his gospel presentation, where it's said of him, this man, speaking of Stephen, ceases to speak words against the holy place, that would have been the temple, and the law. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that, are, that Moses delivered to us. He's preaching Christ. There's miracles that are going with this because the gospel message was being authenticated as it was in Jesus' ministry. Of course, until what I believe the New Testament is finalized. And he's in Solomon's porch where Paul does this in all the synagogues. And he's disputing and he is reasoning with these people on this front from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, we'll see that next week, full force. When it speaks to that he will destroy this place, I don't think it's just when Jesus says, I'm the temple, when you tear this temple down in three days, I will raise it up. I do believe he was pronouncing judgment. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. I'll show you this just real quick. So he's disputing with them. That is, he's preaching the gospel to them. And of course, the church knew this from the disciples because as impressive as the, the temple was, I just want you to point this out. In Matthew chapter 24, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now, you know what Matthew chapter 23 is. Matthew, Matthew chapter 23 is, is Christ's pronouncements of woes and judgment on the nation that has rejected Christ. So he's walking away from that leadership and its temples in the temple. And when the disciples came to point him out the buildings of the temple, notice what Jesus says in verse 2. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Stephen is preaching Christ. Stephen, I believe, is preaching judgment that's coming to the temple. That's why it says when you go back to the text in Acts, it says that he will destroy this place. He is letting them know, unless they heed the gospel of the Messiah, of Jesus of Nazareth, they will be destroyed along with it. The book of Acts, then in time frame, is written from 36 A.D. to 54, or I'm sorry, 64 A.D., and the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. So there is a sense to the gospel message that Stephen has included judgment. Because judgment is a part of the gospel message. And as a result, of course, not only do they want to kill him, they are so frustrated 
by this reasoning and disputing, they are not able to answer him because truth was being spoken of. So they set up a kangaroo court. They draw up a bunch of false witnesses and they commit to stone him to death. Why? Because corrupt hearts hate God. If you're an unbeliever, your heart is corrupt before God. Corrupt hearts hate God. They devise evil. And this is the primary reason. Please listen to this. Unbelief is unreasonable. The only message in this life that makes sense are the words of God that tell the beginning from the end and everything that pertains to redemption. Preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ, is going to bring you, church, conflicts. Jesus says they hated me, they will hate you also. Let me give you three of these things real quick. There are three responses, I believe, to unbelief when you're interacting with someone who doesn't know Jesus. This is what I found to be true. I think it's true, really, even, you know, of the biblical examples. Number one is this. Here's the three. There are people who are in unbelief that are curious. There are people who are in unbelief that are doubters. And there are people who are in unbelief that are hardened rejectors. The curious to me would be like John chapter 3, the Samaritan woman. The doubters would be John chapter 4 and Nicodemus. And then there's this group that Jesus dealt with in Matthew chapter 23 who are hardened rejectors. To the curious in your life when you are presenting Christ, what we need to do is give them room. You got to give them some room. They may not be inundated with Christianity. They may not know the ins and outs. Clearly, in all of these three conditions, you should want to be a friend to them because Jesus is the friend to sinners. But you want to give them room, give them space, let them ask questions. The second group is. I think is the group of doubters. The doubters become this group. They've moved past just being curious. They've maybe have been raised in Christianity, and but you have yet to receive Jesus. They have questions. They have questions. Permit the questions. Let the questions come. Do the best you can to answer the questions or tell them you will try to find out the answers, but, but don't take this burden, okay? They're not going to get saved if you can answer the question or not. They're getting saved by the gospel, right? It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. That's what we're resting in. But yet, nonetheless, because people will not share Jesus because they, they lack confidence in their own knowledge of the Word of God. The truth is, there are people in our lives that are curious that, that, that don't know Jesus, but they're curious. There are people in our lives who are doubters, right? And they need to be, they need to have some of their questions answered. The third category, there are hardened rejectors, 
and the hardened rejecter, please listen to this of the gospel, because this is going to get uncomfortable, need to hear judgment. You might be going, I, I can't do that. I'm not saying you judge them. I'm saying the result of a hardened rejection of Christ is they will only face the judgment. Matthew 23, Matthew 24, the book of Jude. Sometimes the most loving thing you can give someone, it is the most loving thing you can give any person is the gospel. But in that transparency, if there's a hardened rejection against God, they need to understand what that result will bring them. Sharing Jesus, friends, will bring you conflict. It's about to kill Stephen. It killed Jesus. Why did Jesus destroy the temple by 70 AD? Because Jesus is the true temple. When it was talking about there, that he's talking about he's going to change the customs, he's referring to the ceremonial aspects of the law because Jesus is the great high priest, because Jesus is the sacrifice for sin, because Jesus is the one who brings us into the presence of God. Jesus is not only the true deacon, Jesus is the true temple. And if you want to have life with God for eternity, you must come to Jesus because the church is the promised fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. You know, you read this text in just a casual read. You can't help but notice this if you know anything about Christianity. The scripture says here that Stephen's face shone like an angel. And then you get toward the end of it. Look at chapter 7. He's going to preach to them. And then they're going to murder him. And while he's being murdered or stoned to death, verse 59, they're stoning Stephen. He calls out, Lord, receive my spirit. And as he's, as he's falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I'm like, what? That's your murderer trying to kill you because you've shared Jesus with them, the only road to life. And while they're killing you, he says, Lord, please don't hold this sin to their charge. They're the words of Christ. How can someone do that? Well, they're a person that's full of faith, controlled by the Holy Spirit, and full of grace. Man, that's the aim, right? That's the aim. You know, the reformers used to, or, or, or they coined this phrase, that all of those who have died in Christ that have gone on before are the church triumphant, right? They are reigning with, with, with Jesus and Christ until Jesus returns, and of course they receive their resurrected body. So all of our, our friends and family, uh, I got a mom and dad that are with Jesus right now. They're ruling and reigning as Christ reigns, not only in heaven and above, but he's ruling as the sovereign God of the universe to one day bring this all to its historical head. 
That's what Jesus is doing. As Jesus reveals the glory of God to save in his first advent, he came for us to die for us. He leaves us in what the reformers called the church militant. And the church militant is engaged in warfare that, please understand this, if we're going to be the kind of soldiers that God wants us to be, must mature in Christ to be useful for the sake of the kingdom. That's why we don't want sermonettes. That's why we want the meat of the word. Stephen's about to die. I don't know if he knew he was going to die yet. He just knew if he did die, he would be with Christ. That's what he says. I see the right hand, Christ standing at the right hand. Why? Because Jesus was ready to receive him. Man, church, that's your end. That's the end game. In the split second, you die. You will be with Jesus. God, help us to be good soldiers while we're left here on this earth. Jesus, of course, we're about to enjoy the Advent season, then ascended back to heaven to rejoice with the church triumphant because he had accomplished everything necessary for God's people to be saved. Rejoice your life in Jesus because he's the one who reigns. Let's pray. Father, now as we go to the Lord's Supper, we rejoice that we belong to you. We, we rejoice in this life that was lived of Stephen's. We're thankful for your truth that you've left us for all time and eternity. We pray that we would become the church militant that we would receive your word with full faith, a desire to be filled by the Spirit that is to be controlled by the Spirit, and to give out grace to those people who are in our lives, no matter the cost. We pray for this, Lord, and we pray you would strengthen your church by it. That we would be united in Christ to live for the glory of Christ, and to God be the glory alone. Amen. Church, you may rise and go receive the elements to the table. The mystery of the cross I cannot come. Knees of Calvo.